0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our new series in the book of John called Reasons to Believe. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 2 to 5 as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message, a unique portrait of Jesus.
1: One of the continual perplexing problems that will always exist in the Christian community, that is, until Christ returns. The Christian community will always struggle with the problem of second-generation Christianity. In my years in pastoral ministry, I believe I've been blessed often to minister to first-generation Christians. Now, over the years, I've seen many people saved and come to surrender their lives into the hands of Christ as Savior and Lord, And they've come from a wide variety of backgrounds. And I must say, I've just loved it. Thank you, Jesus, for for the ministry that I've had. But here's a little secret. It's just as important to keep the ground we've won as it is to win new ground. If in our zeal to reach out, we neglect those whom we have won, what should we expect that but that they and their children after them will either be lost from the faith or will lapse into nominal Christianity and then even fall into all manner of false teaching and deviant forms of faith. Here's a fact. This has been a problem from the very foundation of the Christian church. Read through the New Testament chronologically, and that's exactly what you find there. The later books are increasingly given over to combat false teaching aberrant forms of the faith, and, and warnings against falling away from the truth. Second-generation Christianity, while vitally important, is a point of great danger. Since we're starting a series on the book of John, I think it's helpful to think of the book precisely through that lens. And by the way, let me digress just a bit. I know that it's a very frequent practice that we encourage new believers to read through the gospel of John first. Look, time anyone's reading the Bible, I'm just happy. But think of it this way. John's gospel is written to people who, for the most part, were quite familiar with the account of Jesus. These people would have been taught and would have been made aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These books had begun to be circulated, and since John wrote his book while he's living in the city of Ephesus— And because the city of Ephesus was quickly becoming the center of the Christian faith at that time, you have to believe that access to the teaching of Jesus would have been a part of the Christian community. And all that to say that for the new Christian, I normally will encourage them to read either Mark or Luke, and then, as they grow in the faith, to move them to John's gospel, which is going to challenge any false perceptions that they might have had about the person of Jesus. Let me get back to the problem of second-generation Christianity. You know, at some point in time, second-generation Christians need to be closely examined to find out if their assumptions about Jesus and about faith and about the nature of their conversion corresponds with the real gospel. Second-generation Christians, that is, Christians whose parents and grandparents were Christians before them, need an examination of their faith. So, let's get back to John's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written before AD 70. When those three documents were completed, you could still go to Jerusalem and examine the temple. All that's mentioned in those books are of things that still existed. But John writes much later. Most scholars who hold a high view of the Bible agree that the book was written by the youngest of Jesus' followers, a man named John. The next generation of church leaders after the apostles all confirmed that the book came from his hand. I mean, we call those men the early church fathers. And those who mention that John, the disciple of Jesus, is the author of this book include men like Arrhenius, Tertullian, Clement, Origen. So all the evidence points to the apostle John as the author of this book. But when was the book written? And most agree that the most likely date of the writing of this book is in the late 80s or the early 90s. So by that time, all of the other apostles had already died. And interestingly enough, John mentions this detail in one of his memories of Jesus. Listen to John 21, verses 21 to 23, when Jesus and Peter are speaking about John. It says, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And so when reading John, we should think of an old man telling the story of Jesus, a story that took place when he was much younger then we must also think that the people reading this gospel for the first time or, or those who received this book would be second generation after the generation who lived during the time of Jesus. So I'm trying to get you a picture of who first read this book. Their parents were a part of the Jesus generation, but these readers of John, well, they got everything secondhand. And also, since this book was written either in the late 80s or early 90s, I want you to consider that 30 years earlier, Jerusalem had been burned to the ground by Roman soldiers, and the Jewish people were driven out of their homeland. The temple in Jerusalem was now a smoldering ruin. I mention that because you might notice some fairly obvious things when reading John. John makes mention of a great many ancient landmarks that no longer would have existed when he wrote the book. He mentions the pool of Bethesda, the colonnade of Solomon around the temple, the the palace, that is, the praetorium, a place he calls the stone pavement. But he also mentions a great many Jewish festivals that that would have been a part of the Jewish experience of the promised land. So John takes pains to mention the Passover and the Feast of Dedication and the, the Feast of Tabernacles. He's quite familiar with what would have happened at Jewish weddings in Israel. He describes Sabbath-keeping, Jewish burial methods, and a host of feasts. And that's because a new generation would have heard about these things, but they were not a part of that generation. You couldn't go back to Israel and see these things. They're now gone. But surely John doesn't write these things just to give a more vivid picture of the promised land. Well, well, of course not. In fact, John very clearly gives us the theme of the entire book in John chapter 20, verse 31. There he says, these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, just a little word on what John means when he says, believe in Jesus. As we're all too aware of today, what it means to believe is very much an open question. It always is with second-generation Christianity. As we know today, all manner of people with with vastly different lifestyle choices and diverse theologies and commitment levels all say that they believe in Jesus. And with that in mind, simply listen to John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Isn't that fascinating? According to John's recounting of Jesus and the reaction he created in people, John wants us to know, well, there's believing and then there's believing. We'll talk more about that when we study that text in detail. But from that one little example, let me make my point. The synoptics, that is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, present Jesus to a generation of people that that were being evangelized in the first place. They were told of Jesus and his life and his works and his death and his ascension, and they were shown the man who had begun his kingdom and had made an invitation, come to me. John's also concerned with evangelization. I, I don't want you to think that he isn't. But John is also re-presenting Jesus to a believer who's maturing and asking in-depth questions. And you're going to get that impression the minute you start reading this book. John will say nothing about Jesus' birth or how the angel first appeared to Mary and then to Joseph, and then the miraculous conception in Mary from the Holy Spirit. I mean, John passes over this detail because he assumes his readers already know it. But what John does is present us with some thoughts about Jesus entering into the world. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, he wants to tell us that everything that belongs to the created order was created by this Word, and that in the fullness of time, that Word became flesh, and that Word tabernacled among us. Those are rich thoughts, and they invite us to consider the birth of Jesus from a perspective that we might not have considered before, and that's precisely what we get when we read John. We're to consider Jesus afresh and, in the process, ask ourselves, what is it that I believe when I think about Jesus? Do I actually understand who he truly is? What is belief and what is unbelief? That's the center of what John is communicating to us. So stay tuned for that.
0: So grateful to hear feedback from listeners as we celebrate 60 years of ministry. Friends of the ministry wrote recently to share how encouraged they've been over the years listening to the Bible teaching of Theodore Epp how he was a great man of faith, vision, and faithfulness to the Word of God. And now, they continue to listen every day with gratitude as Dr. Newfeld remains faithful to this same legacy. The Word of God does not change, and we continue to celebrate its truth and the good news shared for all mankind. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to continue a 60-year legacy of Bible teaching made possible through the prayers and gifts of friends like you right across Canada for six decades Please continue with your gracious support As the truth of God's word is broadcast Across our nation Call us at 1-800-663-2425 Or visit Backtothebible.ca Today
1: I'm not surprising very many people When I say that when you read the book of John Well, John sounds So very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke and a great many of the more liberal scholars have argued that John doesn't present us with real historical events in the life of Jesus. They argue that since John is the most theological of all the accounts of Jesus, well, perhaps the issue is not what Jesus actually did or said, but, but more what the event of Jesus actually means. I mean, after all, how do you reconcile the fact that in John's gospel, when Jesus speaks, well, he sounds so much like John especially when you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Are we supposed to think that John is actually reporting on the real events of Jesus, or is this more of an extended allegory of Jesus? Well, in answer to that, let's consider what we know with certainty. John was clearly the youngest of the 12, and from John's own accounting of it, Jesus was concerned for him and took a special interest in him. He kind of took him under his wing, very much like an older brother would protect his kid brother. And there's no doubt that Jesus had a special relationship with John. Listen to how John describes it, and I'm reading John 13, verses 21 to 24. It's an incident that occurred during the Last Supper. It says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask of whom he was speaking. What an interesting scenario. So Peter's thinking, if anyone could get to Jesus to explain this issue further, it's got to be John. I mean, he's the one whom Jesus loved. He's the one that's sitting closest to him. Or listen to this description. It's found in John 21, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. See, from these kind of events, we get a picture. John would simply follow Jesus. Wherever Jesus went, that's where he went. If he was no part of the discussion, he would simply follow Jesus from a distance. He never let Jesus out of his sight. And Jesus, for his part, had a tender heart towards John. He'd simply allow John to just hang around, even if he wasn't directly a part of the discussion. And then later on, when John became a preacher, it is this intimacy with Jesus that he talked about. Listen to how he describes that in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And that, by the way, is why this gospel reads the way it does there are times in reading it that I struggle to know which words belong to John and and which belong to Jesus. So, for instance, I mean, I can't figure out whether John 3.16 was actually said by Jesus or whether John is explaining to us what is meant in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, but it really doesn't matter. Jesus had so infused his life into John that all John thought about was Jesus, and furthermore, we do know that, that all of us communicate in different ways, using different vocabulary at different times. Look, I know I do. How I speak from the pulpit and how I speak to my wife and my kids, I mean, all of my communication is quite different. It doesn't mean I'm two-faced or hypocritical, but rather, communication takes its shape from the context in which it's found. So in conclusion, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke concentrate on Jesus' public ministry, what he says, John does so as well, but he also includes the most personal and intimate glimpses of Jesus and invites us to consider the theological implications of those personal encounters. And for those reasons, it shouldn't surprise us that some of the vocabulary and thoughts that Jesus expresses as as John records them and as Matthew, Mark, and Luke record them, well, it's different. You see, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for example, we find frequent references to the kingdom of God, but, but in John, we find frequent references to eternal life. So did Jesus actually talk about eternal life? Well, most assuredly, he did. So why didn't Matthew, Mark, and Luke record that? Well, they didn't because they were focused on one aspect of the ministry of Jesus. So I have no doubt that John's recollection of Jesus is the real Jesus of history. What he said, as is recorded in John, is what he actually said. He add one more aspect that's related to specifically to John's age. You know, for those of us who are older, do you remember how differently you interacted with things when you were younger than you do now? See, there's a time in our lives that is in our young adult years where the world is especially vivid. That's why so many of us remember all the music that we heard while we were in our 20s, but the stuff we heard in our 40s, well, you know, it didn't make anywhere near the impact that the stuff that we heard in our 20s made on us. And John would say in First John 1 verse 1, from the way he uses the grammar there, that Jesus' voice is still ringing in his ears and the the sight of him is still impressed deeply into his retina. So from all of that, we should not hesitate even even for the moment in reading John as, as real historical events of what Jesus did, but more so, we're reading what all of that meant. And in so doing, John is challenging the faith of a new group of believers. Do you, he asks, actually believe in Jesus? When I begin my verse-by-verse analysis of John, starting tomorrow, you're going to notice that I'm beginning with chapter 2 and will take us through all the way to chapter 5. You know, I've already done John chapter 1 at Christmas time, and those messages really are available to anyone who asks. But let me very briefly give you a description of John's gospel. Remember, John's describing the real Jesus to people who need to be challenged. There are seven occasions in this book where Jesus begins a sentence with two words I am. With all the different views about who Jesus is, Jesus himself was very concerned to tell us who he was. So let's simply listen to Jesus express himself First, I am the bread of life. Second, I am the light of the world. Third, I am the gate for the sheep. Fourth, I am the good shepherd. Five, I am the resurrection and the life. Sixth, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And seventh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. As John records each one of these I am statements of Jesus, we remember that in John 8, Jesus once said, Before Abraham was born, I am. So John is inviting a new generation of believers to listen and to think and to ask, do I understand who I'm talking about when I talk about Jesus? Just how significant is he and what does it mean if I believe in him? Now, before I leave this topic, let me give you a very easy outline of John. Think about dividing the book into five sections. Section 1 covers John 1, verses 1 to 18. It's the the prologue of the book. And section 2, from John 1, verses 19, all the way to the end of chapter 12, well, that covers the three years of Jesus' ministry. And then comes section number 3. That's John 13 to 17. It's the passion of Jesus right before the cross. Then section 4, John 18 to 20 is the section of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And then finally, section five is the epilogue of the book, chapter 21, which is a call for all who have heard these words to devote themselves fully to Jesus. But at each section of the book, as we go forward, John is telling the believer about Jesus and asking us to search out. Do you believe? Do you understand? Will you surrender all? Do you know Jesus? And over the next four weeks, I'm going to begin this journey. John chapter 2 to 5. There we will encounter Jesus at a wedding. There we will see Jesus saying that he's greater than the Jerusalem temple. There we will see him with a man named Nicodemus and speaking about the necessity of the new birth. And there we're going to see him with a Samaritan woman at a well outside of Sychar. And finally, we're going to see him with a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda a man who is healed, but does not yet believe. And with each personal encounter with wedding guests, with a Jewish Pharisee, with an immoral Samaritan woman, and with a paralyzed man, we're supposed to ask, what would believing in Jesus mean for that person? And when we're done, we need to ask, what does believing in Jesus mean for me? So let's take the assignment. Let's consider Jesus afresh. And let's see him as we've never seen him before. And let's find out, do I believe? And if I don't, let's answer the call. Jesus invites us to come to him and surrender our lives into his hands and to believe fully.
0: John, I'm interested because you look at Nicodemus, you look at the woman at the well. uh, The interesting thing is they're very, very different people, different backgrounds, but Jesus relates to both of them. Yeah, he does. And he speaks very directly to their, you know,
1: to their very real situation. I mean, obviously, I mean, you know, comparing Nicodemus to the woman at the well, I mean, if you can't, I mean, I can't imagine two more different people. I'm sure they would never have spoken to each other on the street. Um, I'm sure that they would never have been in the same circles. You know, Jesus, interestingly enough, he moves in some very different circles and speaks very directly in each individual circle. So, I know he's offering eternal life to both Nicodemus and the woman at the well, Um, but the wording that he uses and the way in which he communicates tells us a lot about how we can communicate the gospel with others and uh, how to use words that they can easily access.
0: Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us right here tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The regular gifts of our partner to tell monthly partners have become the very backbone to sustain the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada. Programs that reach out to every demographic using every possible medium, teaching the truth of God's Word that speaks into every area and question of life. Partner to Tell Monthly Partners are critical to the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada's daily Bible teaching program with Dr. John Newfeld. They support the ongoing ministry to young adults through In Doubt. They provide messages of hope and joy shared daily that point to Jesus through Laugh Again. And now your gifts will become increasingly important as Truth in Life today reaches potentially millions of households offering biblical truth that engages culture. Thank you for all you do. And if you're interested in joining the ranks of Partner to Tell Partners, do so today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.